May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, we are celebrating the Feast of the Transfiguration, which means that this is the last stop before the journey of Lent gets underway on Ash Wednesday. Get off now if you can. That's right. Get your hallelujahs out this morning. So this is a chance for us to gather ourselves a little bit. We know that Lent's coming, and we can begin to prepare for that journey into the wilderness now. We can store up resources that will sustain us over the lean weeks to come. None of us taking a long journey when we pack up the car doesn't first go and check on the fluids Even if you're not maybe a car person, you know enough to go and be sure that the oil is at the appropriate level. Make sure things are at least in working order so that when you go to your mechanic, you can say those sort of credulous kind of, oh yeah, I was thinking, that is the air filter, isn't it? And they'll they'll play along with you for at least a little bit. Spiritually, this is a time for us to check under the hood. And I find that this is a skill that not many people much less Christians, are very good at practicing. We like that feeling of accomplishment that comes from getting things done. And so when we have things to do, we push ourselves almost to the brink of collapse, letting our spiritual lives founder, neglecting the care of our souls until we find ourselves in a crisis of our own making. We all know that feeling of being in seasons that are spiritually more difficult, drier, times when God is harder to hear from or when we might be harder for God to reach. And those can come about for any number of different reasons. Often, that feeling of developing distance between us and the Lord is the product of a personal crisis, the loss of a loved one or a job, and suddenly we find ourselves thrown for a loop. We feel shaken up alienated from ourselves, and when you're alienated from yourself, it's really difficult to imagine reaching out to God. I remember hearing a story from a friend of mine about a time when he was going fishing early one morning by himself, and he took his little motorboat, and he was intending to go from the dock behind his cabin just across the lake to the far side to fish. And so as he is standing in the boat, steering at the back, not really paying attention to what he was doing, he managed to get his feet tangled up in some rope. And then he managed to get his feet tangled up in themselves. And then, to top it off, he managed to fall out of his boat into the lake. But this was a time when motorboats just kept going, whether you had the handle or not. So the end of the rope is wrapped around his boot, he is in the water, and the boat is still going. So this is a pressing issue, as you can imagine. So he scrambles around in the water a little bit and manages to get himself untangled so he's not just being dragged behind the boat, which is crisis number one. But he's also not able to keep hold of the rope as the boat is moving away from him toward the far shore. So he finds himself now in the middle of this lake and has to dog paddle back to shore 
and take a long and I imagine soaking wet walk around the outer edge to where his boat has comfortably crashed into the far side. Now he was lucky because he's a Florida bass fisherman and not a Puget Sound salmon fisherman. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise this story has a much more tragic end and it wouldn't really be suitable for this illustration. But I think that when we struggle in life, we often feel ourselves drifting too far from God. We're like this guy trying to grab the rope. If we can realize the trouble that we're in quickly enough, and we can get back into the boat where we want to be safely with the Lord. But oftentimes, if you're like me, you may not recognize the trouble that you're in until it's too late. And the Lord feels like he is steadily moving on without us. And it can be frustrating to feel that left-behind feeling. And then it takes a lot more work to get back to where you intended to be originally. I think Moses would probably understand this kind of feeling. His relationship with the Lord was characterized by what we might call vigorous conversation. He wrestled openly with God's call to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. He struggled with his feelings of guilt and inadequacy and failure. But despite all those troubles, God never left Moses alone. And the relationship that they developed is unique in Scripture. If you start with the encounter at the burning bush, all the way up to their meetings on Mount Sinai, Moses and I am who I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had a special relationship. It's a close enough connection that in chapter 33 of Exodus, as Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law a second time, after that small incident with the golden calf that you might remember, Moses asks to see God's face. Now Moses has seen acts of divine punishment and miraculous power. He's seen God split the sea in two and plague Egypt. And he, over time, has come to understand God's intentions for God's people. Moses knows the Lord, and they have a very, very deep relationship, but he is asking for the impossible. Moses asks to see God's glory, to witness the unrestrained, powerful, terrifying beauty of the Lord of Lords. And the Lord loves Moses. But what Moses is asking for is more than any mortal can hope to handle. And so God answers his request this way. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So whatever comes after that is going to have to be pretty conciliatory, right? Man cannot see my face and live, but behold... There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so it happened just as God said. Moses receives just the tiniest glimpse of the glory of the Lord, just a trace of the majesty of God. He could not hope to see more and live, but even this momentary glance changes Moses permanently. He's up on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights, and when he returns to the camp of the Israelites, he is not the same. 
And Moses is greeted, not with singing and celebration, but with fear. Because something is different about him, and the Israelites notice right away. It's written all over his face, kind of a divine exfoliation. His face... That's going to be the one thing you remember. Uh, and, that's, and that's fine. Uh, Moses' face is changed. It's become radiant. It's shining with this kind of internal light like a lamp. And the Israelites keep their distance until Moses tells them to come closer. And then he has to wear a veil so that they can look at him without being consumed by their fear. So in ancient times, your countenance, your face, is thought to reveal your character. And Moses' time with the Lord has shaped his character so strongly that it's given him a permanent glow. The presence of the holiness of the Lord must have been awe-inspiring and a little scary. And the radiance is impressed on his face. And this is the glory that is God's alone, that cannot be matched, that no one else can claim except, except no substitutes or imitations. And I think it's important for us to note Moses does not know that he is glowing. He doesn't feel the change internally. Others have to tell him about the change that they can see in his life. Whatever his struggles, whatever his frustrations, being in the presence of the Lord God has changed Moses. And that kind of transfiguration would not be possible apart from being in the intimate, direct, personal presence of God over and over again. Developing the kind of close relationship that in Exodus 33 is described as friendship. And so it is with us. Often in our lives, in those moments of season of struggle, when we're in the unexpected desert places, we don't put ourselves in the presence of God. We seek comfort anywhere else we can find it, in entertainment or in distraction or avoidance. And then we wonder why nothing is changing and why God seems to be so far away. If we desire to be transfigured, if we desire to see our lives changed, we must go and seek out the presence of God. We must strive to be God's friends. But all too often, we do everything else we can think of to avoid placing ourselves in that vulnerable, intimate relationship with the Lord. I think that's probably because we fear what he might see in us. But the good news is that being in God's presence is good for our souls. Having an honest conversation with God will be good for us. And of course, an honest conversation is actually just another description of prayer. And that's where Moses makes his second appearance in this morning's reading at the prayer of Jesus on the mountaintop. So Jesus brings Peter, James, and John, kind of the disciples' big three, with him to the mountaintop to pray. Prayer is an intimate part of Jesus' relationship with the Father. This is just the way that he relates. And as he prays, Jesus is changed. The appearance of his faith is altered, his clothes become dazzling white, and then suddenly Moses and Elijah, those two famous figures from Israel's history, show up. Now, as a preacher, I take some comfort that Peter, James, and John are kind of falling asleep as Jesus is praying. But then when Moses and Elijah show up, they perk right up and snap to attention. 
I may have to try that sometime. Uh, <laughs> if only it were that easy. So in the moment on the mountain, the veil that divides eternity from the present is lifted. So that these two who represent the law and the prophets join Jesus and the glory of God rests on him and is visible. And what Peter, James, and John see is Jesus as he truly is. He is glorious, basking in the love of God the Father. And Peter, James, and John are witnesses. So if the face is a mirror to the soul, if your countenance reveals your character, they're the first to see, even if they don't understand, the true nature of Jesus' life. That he is not just a teacher of wisdom or a very good preacher, but God in the flesh. The one who in his life and ministry will bring the light and the power and the glory of the Lord into the world in human form. But this glory, as it is revealed to Moses and embodied by Christ, is more than just a light shining in a dark world. This glory finds its fullest expression in Jesus' faithful journey all the way to the cross and his justification by God in the resurrection. Because the cross and the resurrection show what the transfiguration was trying to reveal the glory of the Lord. It is the self-emptying love of Jesus that shows us truly who he is. More than just words or miracles, it's the cross that shows us just how much love God has to give. And that's what Jesus and Moses and Elijah are discussing on the mountaintop. What's yet to come in Jerusalem. The completion of all God's work. Jesus' departure, the second exodus, which will fulfill his mission and accomplish the redemption of the world. That glorious defeat will in fact be an incredible victory. And it is this, this defeat that makes it possible for each and every one of us to be bearers of the same glory that Christ showed, to become friends of God. One of my favorite movies... It's called Almost Famous. It is the fictionalized story of a teenager traveling around the country following a southern rock band, trying to write a story for Rolling Stone magazine uh, in the 1970s. Those of you who are around for the 70s will have to testify that this is something that probably seemed more plausible at that time than it does now. So at one point, the main character, he's kind of a button-down, square young man, is introduced to a hippie. And unprompted, she shouts in his face, your aura is purple. <laughs> what a wonderful thing it would be if we all reflected the glorious holiness of God in such a way that other people could actually see it on our faces. We, like Moses, can become friends of God who reflect that glory like Jesus. We can be transfigured by that glory so that the Lord's presence shines in our lives with a kind of permanent glow. Now, the acquisition of this kind of holiness takes time and practice and patience. Like a piece of brass, our souls need polishing. 
We need to be buffed by being in the presence of God where dross can be removed and the light of him can be reflected more brightly. So as I've mentioned, we're now just a few days away from the beginning of Lent, a season of quiet reflection, of self-denial and repentance. And as we enter this season, we do it because we are in need of transfiguration. We need to be changed so that we can reflect the glory of the Lord more faithfully. Like brass, we need polishing so that we can shine with his light. In this season of repentance, we will seek to be emptied of ourselves so that our petty jealousy and our pride and our unforgiveness and all our sin can be poured out and that we can be filled up with the glory of God. As we prepare our hearts and minds for this season, as we try to store up resources to sustain us through the desert, we must remember that we cannot hope to keep some part of ourselves hidden away, something reserved that's just for us. Because the way to glory lies through participation in the humiliation that Jesus will suffer. His willingness to give up everything, to lay down his life to save ours. Christ models for us a new way of being a human being that we can imitate in our own lives. And it's that suffering humility, it's that willingness to go all the way to the cross that holds the universe together because God's power is revealed most in weakness offered for the sake of others. All must be given up to God because as we empty ourselves, Christ can enter in and then his glory is able to shine through us. That is the work of a lifetime, but it can begin at any moment. Even today, we can be transfigured. Amen. Amen.